everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and you are hearing my voice first once again because Ryan remains on vacation. I do not know where he is, but last I heard he was bowling and doing so poorly. But without our rhyming host, we soldier on to talk about some of this week's big news and answer a few more listener questions. To do so, I'm joined by two gentlemen. Yesterday, you had you both had some of the answers, combining to have all of the answers. Today, you have all the answers for two specific teams. Up first, a man who's prepared to fix all of LAFC's issues in this episode. It's Joe Lowry, Arizona Joe. You've got solutions. When we're done recording, we're sending them to Will Ferrell. We're assuming that the team is fixed. <laughs> yes, Will Ferrell is the point of contact for any LAFC-related, <laughs> like any soccer operations, any soccer decisions. Those are all going to Will. Also, Taylor, I love, I really do love how Ryan's bowling just caught an absolute stray in this open. Um, things are going really well so far, guys. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens when he posts his bowling score. He's he must be, be so ridiculed. Wait, what goes. was it? What, what, where did he post it? Not, I think it was either on Twitter or in the group chat. Either way, it was not good. What was my, it? My Shoot, I now I want to know. I didn't see this. Ah, All right, well, going. while I introduce Graham, it. Joe, you can go find his yeah. score because <laughs> yeah. we have another individual with us who's going to be fixing Manchester United. It's Glasgow Graham Ruthven. Graham, a couple quick adjustments, and they're winning the Champions League, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Why not? <laughs> That's right, what you wanted to hear, right? Yeah. I'm glad. Yes, that is exactly what okay, I wanted to hear. I'm here to tell you what you want to hear. So, yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, with, 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 like a confidence like that, Graham, you are soon to be appointed director of football operations of football or something like that in the next couple of weeks, I would assume. Yeah, of, of some uh, region that isn't where Manchester United play, I presume. <laughs> Perfect. That's well, we're going to start with Manchester United uh, today. We've, we're going to talk a little bit about Chelsea. We're going to talk about some MLS news that we've missed, a few updates on Americans in the transfer market, and we have four listener questions. It's going to be a busy show, and that's... Before we even talk about Manchester United, which, knowing me, could end up being 45 minutes, we'll try to make it less than that. But we have not yet talked about their 1-0 loss to Wolves, which is, I believe, the first loss under Ralph uh, Rangnick since he took over with the 1-0 win over Crystal Palace. It's been two wins, two draws, one loss, but they are not playing particularly strong opposition. They are not playing particularly well. This game against Wolves, Graham, exceptionally not well, and that seems to have led to a lot of ink being spilt about how bad things are about how this team doesn't make any sense how the situation behind the scenes is very bad but it does feel overall like the situation has gone from not great to toxic very quickly would you agree with that assessment and if so do you have thoughts as to why i'm that's a big question to start yeah. off so maybe just a couple ideas in there yeah so i i definitely agree that it seems to have become very toxic very quickly and um, when ranyuk first came in and he played uh Crystal Palace in his first game, and I don't know if people remember, but he'd only had one, maybe two training sessions um, before that game. And that first half against Crystal Palace, there were a lot of things that looked very Ranyuki, for want of a better term. They, they did press Manchester United, and they faded in the second half, but you could put that down to fitness and them only having one or two training sessions under a new manager. That has been the best we have seen of Manchester United under, under Ranyuk. They have got progressively worse with every match that they have played, and the most bizarre thing is they are looking less and less like a Ranyuk team with every match that they play. So, yes, the, the formation and the structure that they used in that defeat to Wolves was a... Uh, was broadly a 4-2-2-2, which is obviously Ranić's favoured system and formation. But in terms of the general approach, there was very little to differentiate it between what we saw under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and that has led to reports of divides in the dressing room. There has been claims that minated players are not just unhappy with some of Ralph Ranić's training um, methods, 
they are underwhelmed with some of his assistance. Primarily, I've seen the Athletic report that some of the players are unsure of Chris Armas's uh, credentials to be a Manchester United assistant. They're not sure of his background. I personally don't know if that should come into the assessment made by players. It's really just about whether his training methods are good enough. But it definitely feels like this has very quickly become a question of character as much as it is about the player's quality for Ranić at Manchester United. When you're talking about the issue of character, do you mean the players themselves? Do you mean for the manager? Do you mean for the club as a whole? Um, All of the above, I guess. All right. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it very much seems like... Look, we all all know um, that there are weaknesses in, in, in that Manchester United team in, in football terms. So they need pretty much a new central midfield and they, they struggle to press and they aren't very press resistant themselves. And that isn't a particularly good mix. And on, on paper, though, I still think they should be maybe two or three first team players away from truly competing. But there are reports saying that seven as many as 17 players now openly want to leave the club. Other reports say 11, but there seems to be widespread agreement that my United isn't a very happy camp at the moment and it just feels like from top to bottom from the players everyone that you mentioned there the players the manager the boardroom nobody seems to be on the same page and maybe that's what Ranić has been appointed to do maybe this was always likely because I wrote a piece a few weeks ago that said United kind of need him to be their demolition man which is you know keep the players that he can build something from and then get rid of the rest and start again and so maybe this process was was always going to be likely but I don't have much sympathy for this group of United players, I have to say. There isn't a group of players in world football that have been given the benefit of the doubt as much as this group that United have at the moment has. You know, under Mourinho, you had players who apparently weren't playing at their best because they, were, they weren't being played in the right position or they weren't being treated in the right way. Then you had similar under Solskjaer. For so many players, the problem was the manager, apparently. And then going way back, you know, I did have sympathy with United players under Louis van Gaal when they were being asked to play a pretty dismal style of football. It was an energy-sapping time to be at Man United, it seemed, at that point. But my sympathy runs out when a manager whose early instructions seemed to be run more and they decide this guy isn't for them. At that point, having rattled through four managers and none of them have seemingly been good enough or a right fit, you you do wonder about the character of that group and that seems to be the, the biggest issue, at least in the short term, for, for Ranyet right now. Graham, one, one more question and then I will stop peppering you. But it is sort of a, a loaded one. It informs my answer to this. Mm-hmm. I do feel like their Manchester United is an easy club to dislike. And I say that as a Man United fan. I think for the successes they had for so long, it builds a level of like uh like fairweather fans potentially would be the accusation I always heard. But now with how bad they have been, how much money has been spent and how they still seem to be in this precarious negative position, I like when you say those set like there's the stories about the 17 players. I read those stories too and when you start reading them in depth, you realize how little substance there really is to some of those numbers. And I do think some of the story is a little bit overblown because you know you're going to get clicks. They're this huge club. Uh, people enjoy the shot in front of them having this this lack of success. So I, I wanted to paint that just to wonder if you would agree with that sort of sentiment overall. Yes, overall, broadly speaking. I think Manchester United, Manchester United are the most uh, covered 
club, certainly in, in English language, you know, coverage and, and, and media, there isn't a, there isn't a, a club that gets more coverage. And whenever something bad happens with Manchester United, it does feel like the whole of the, the football world is kind of rubbernecking in their direction. And I don't feel the same with really any other club in the in the Premier League, even even Liverpool and Arsenal and clubs of similar stature don't seem to draw the same fascination and maybe that is because of things that you mentioned there my United were the dominant force in English football and so there's a sense of schadenfreude with everyone kind of enjoying their their failure at the moment at least not Manchester uh, non-Manchester United fans are enjoying it so yes I, I, I do agree with that but you know I, I yeah. do also believe in um, you know no smoke without fire and sure. there is just so much coming out about Manchester United at the moment and also from very reputable sources like the athletic you know Laurie Whitwell who who's reporting all the way through the recent troubles at Manchester United and their recent struggles has been absolutely spot on and he is also reporting kind of unrest in the camp and misgivings about the assistants and Raniak and yeah as I say there's too much coming out at the moment for there, for it to be nothing it might not be as bad as some reports are stating but it definitely seems like something yeah and I and I want to be clear I'm not saying like everything's great I don't know where all these stories are coming from uh, the reason why I ask that is because it it where my thinking goes is I think sometimes those reports get blown up and blown up and blown up and I don't know, like the, the Bigfoot was 10 feet tall. No, he was 30 feet tall. No, he was 70 feet tall. And it just gets <laughs> b- bigger and bigger. But at the same time, I think there is truth there. But sometimes when it becomes hyperbolic or overly emotional or a little bit gleeful, um, you can sort of maybe the issues become hazier, murkier, more difficult to understand. And I, my feeling, uh, Jonathan Wilson wrote a really good piece for The Guardian, essentially boils down to, I think you've got a lot of club or players that have been brought into the team. I think I saw reports that Rangnick, when he was conducting training, was dealing with between 26 and 29 players, and that's with seven senior players out on loan. So it's this huge squad assembled over the years that keep getting contract extensions because I think Ed Woodward wanted to keep the value high in case they were to sell those players on. So you have a ton of people who don't really fit or might not fit being asked to go through training when they're probably not going to play. And I think it builds this level of complacency that then if you're a player and you're looking at Ralph Rangnick, you're wondering, is he here for six months? Is he here for the long term? Why am I going to do all this work to be in this pressing system and work and work and work when he might be out the door in six months and we might never hear from him again and we have a new manager coming in? It feels to me like there's just confusion at almost every single level that makes it very difficult to understand. And before I continue this monologue, Joe, I will turn it to you or Graham, whoever wants to jump in to kind of let me know if maybe I'm a little bit off base on that one, because I'm aware that I'm speaking uh, mostly as a fan, less so as a neutral pundit. No, I think a lot of what you're saying, Taylor, makes sense, right? It's it's logical to think about being in that situation, right? If, if I put myself in the Manchester United locker room right now, we're in flux. And yes, there is this stabilizing force or what should be a stabilizing force in Ralph Rangnick. He's coming in to sort of get things level ahead of next season. But it's still a weird situation, right? Exactly what you referenced there, Taylor. He's coming in and wanting me to do all this running, wanting me to do X, Y, and Z. I have no confidence that the next manager coming in over the summer is going to want me to do those things at all. He might want me to do A, B, and C instead, right? So there will be some carryover regardless of who the next coach is after Ralph Rangnick. Because really... A lot of coaches today use a lot of the same principles, and it's a few others that are different from one manager to the next. There will be continuity there, and so it's not a total wash or total waste of time for these players. 
But I can see the mental confusion and I can see maybe players saying, I don't really want to close that man down. I don't really want to do this or that. And I don't know if that's the case, but I can see that happening. My, my major thought on this whole situation, though, my, my thesis kind of is that it's still too early. It, it, well, that's, I guess that's part of my thesis here. It's too early. I was reading a piece uh, from ESPN from Mark Ogden, who basically included this quote. A source told ESPN that some players have been underwhelmed by Rangnick's early impact on the pitch and with his recruitment, but that he also needs time to overcome a disrupted December in order to assert himself in the job. And I, I really do believe that that's true. He needs time. This is not going to be an overnight fix. This is not going to be a one-month fix. Heck, it might not even be a six-month fix. This is a big job. The squad needs changes. We've talked about that plenty in the past. The organization itself is tumultuous. There's issues there. And this is a weird time with COVID. Manchester United had to close down their training ground and, and train in a different way. That's not a normal first month on a job. And Manchester United is not a normal job. So I I do think Ralph Rangnick is a smart guy. I think he's good at a lot of what he does. And I think that's a huge part of all this. In addition to, Graham, you kind of referenced this. It's been four managers now. At a certain point, and this should have happened sooner, almost certainly, you have to look away from the manager and look to the squad and, and realize the issues are not entirely resting on anyone who's occupying that manager or who's sitting in that seat on the touchline. It's having to do with the players. We often, and, and I fall into this group, we often overvalue what managers do. And, and there's been studies on this, and there's been plenty of writing on this in recent days. The players are and always will be the most important part of any game. And every manager will tell you that, but often we get that confused. I get that confused because we want to talk about tactics and, and what's happening on the field in a more macro level. But really, if Manchester United want to see defined improvement, and if they ever want to compete for a title... Yes, they have to sort the manager thing out. Yes, they have to get this whole mess sorted out, at least somewhat. But really, they need to change the squad. And until that happens on a pretty major level, I don't think we're looking at this team as a title contender. Uh, yeah, I would I would absolutely agree. I don't think title contender is uh, a category I would put them in. I'm not even sure top four contender for this season. And I don't have any issues with that, honestly. Speaking, uh, again, mostly as a fan here, I think my, my hope would be that Ed Woodward leaving on February 1st that actually happens. And then you have new people in charge who I doubt are going to come out and say, yeah, Ed Woodward got a bunch of stuff wrong. We're not doing that anymore. But he did. And I do think that his time at Man United, at least when it comes to the results on the pitch, is going to be seen as a failure. It will be remembered for overpaying for players when they could have gotten them for cheaper or just overpaying in general. It'll be remembered for the Super League and lots of broken promises. And so I think if you have new directors coming in, a new vision for the club, and part of that new vision is Ralph Rangnick figuring out what works with this squad and what doesn't, and trying to figure out the basis of an approach that you can then build on from here, I think there's a hesitancy for Men United to do that because we've heard about rebuilding and figuring things out and restructuring for so long, but it's all kind of been with the same people and the same personnel, and my hope would be that with some changes there, there is a mandate for Rangnick to basically, you've got six months to get this thing going, and then you're going to be an actual advisor who actually consults on the day-to-day, -day, and that helps structure the club for the long term. I think in the short term, he, as you both have correctly pointed out, he hasn't had a ton of time. This is their first loss. There have been a ton of fixtures. He did have a two-week break, but that two-week break was due to COVID. And I also think a thing we've seen pretty regularly in the NFL is players returning from COVID have underperformed and really struggled. And there have been breathing issues and just like difficulty catching your breath, but there's been fatigue and, and headaches and kind of like loss of mental focus and sharpness that comes from uh, COVID and having symptoms of COVID. 
And so I think that's also maybe part of it as to why we haven't seen the pressing for Manchester United of late. If you have people who are coming back from COVID or did have some symptoms of COVID now trying to do a lot of hard pressing, high intensity drills, I'm not sure that works. And I wonder if he's trying to ease off a little bit and just focus on we've got the talent to get through some of these teams that we theoretically should be beating. And then come March, when the schedule gets a bit stronger, that's when they have a little bit more time to get those systems in place. So that would be my sort of explanation for where things are in the short term, but my hope for the long term, Graham. Uh, I, I I don't think that they are title challengers, as Joe said. I don't think they're top four contenders. What do you think a successful end of the season looks like for them with that in mind? Um, I think it's more about how they're playing rather than the, the results. Yeah. Um, so I think if if there's a clear identity to how Manchester United are playing, if there are clear principles in how they're approaching games, then I would say that is a, a successful job done by Ranyet. Given that obviously his job is a very short-term one, he's, he's, he's an interim manager, so he's not really expected to achieve any great success. For me, in the, in the short term, one of the best things Man United can do, and they've announced today that Richard Arnold is going to be the, the, the Woodward successor, um, one of the the easiest things Arnold can do to kind of maybe diffuse the situation slightly, um, or at least move the situation on more, it might not diffuse the situation, but is basically confirm what um, Ranić's position is going to be after the end of the season. So that any players who are thinking, oh, well, this guy's only here until the end of the season, they actually get a message saying, look, this guy might not be the head coach at the end of the season, but he's still going to be making decisions on your future and he's still going to be shaping the, the identity of the club so that maybe that does weed out some players who truly don't want to be there and then others who are just posturing at the moment because they, they don't really like the situation. And that is an easy decision for, for Arnold to, to make. They've already, United have already indicated he's going to be staying on in some sort of consultancy role, but firm up that position and I think that already kind of provide some continuity beyond the end of the season, which is, seems to be giving them a bit of an issue right now. I think there's there's so much potential freedom in like a changing of the guard. And again, I don't think they're going to come out and say, Ed Woodward got this all wrong. It's a new day here. But I think when you have some people like stepping into positions of more authority, you can make some decisions and then blame like the past regime for what went wrong. And so, Graham, to your point, I think if you if you are Murtaugh or you are Richard Arnold and you decide we're backing Ralph Rangnick and that is our guy and anybody who disagrees with him can go to the bench or can collect a paycheck and not play, I think that sends a pretty, pretty sizable message. Whereas right now, I, I have to believe there are certain players in that squad that do sort of feel like, eh, I'm going to be here no matter what. You can't really afford to part with me. You can't really afford to not play me. So I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to be less interested in doing aspects of what he's asking. And I think having consistent messaging from top to bottom that this person is in charge and we have to follow what they're doing, I think that probably helps get people in line, or at the very least, it starts getting more people out the door in January. Ryan Bolda, one thirty-four. Everybody, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was gonna go back to it. Thank and you. And honestly, that's not bad. No, I'm not a no. good bowler, so that seems like pretty good to me. Like that would be, a, I would be, I'd be pretty happy if that's what I bowled. So, uh, Ryan, you're all right. It's all right. Keep your, uh, keep your chin up. Yeah. See, if anything, I've gone the other way, and I now feel like this was a humble brag attempt. Whereas Graham Rutherford oh, yeah. responded Only to the bowl one thirty-four. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I didn't even off day for game. me at the lanes. <laughs> Graham getting beaten by his two-year-old daughter. Uh, I, I think that is more of a realistic uh, tweet about uh, shame when it comes to bowling. Ryan tweeting a 134 and, worth noting, uh, destroying everyone he was bowling against. 
I, th- I think maybe more of a humble brag than it was yeah. a I- a sincere remonstration of his abilities. I, w- I wasn't aware Twitter was a public forum, so I, I wasn't aware. I didn't realize people were seeing my tweet. <laughs> I was like, "Oh shoot, this thing is on." All right. Uh, I think we've we've probably talked plenty about Manchester United, but I suspect we will continue to talk about them uh, as the season moves forward. We've also talked plenty about Romelu Lukaku, uh, who. Gave an interview that effectively uh, blew up Twitter for a couple days. He's now done another interview with Chelsea. Joe, was it you who referred to it as a hostage video, or was that uh, Grammar Ryan? No, I think that was me yesterday after we recorded listener questions. We were planning out what today's show was going to be. And the little clip that Chelsea posted on Twitter really did look like he was being held hostage. If you go in and click on the link and watch the the full interview, it's like five minutes long with Chelsea TV. Uh, It it looks less like that, but the the way they framed it to post on Twitter was a little bit suspicious and, and strange. (laughs) To to recap the situation, Taylor, you already kind of laid the groundwork. uh, Lukaku was dropped for that game against Liverpool over the weekend. We talked about that on Weekend Review. Reportedly, then the two parties, Lukaku and Tuchel, met on Monday, January 3rd and cleared the air. That hostage apology video came out on Tuesday, January 4th. And I thought Lukaku struck a lot of the right tones in that interview. I'm not really in a position to judge that necessarily, but he said, I'm sorry for the upset I've caused. And he he made sure to clarify what the intent of the original interview was and, and commit himself to Chelsea. He checked all the boxes that I would want if I'm a Chelsea fan. And I think those are the people ultimately that are best suited to judge that situation. Since then, Tuchel said that there will be some sort of disciplinary action and, and there'll be a fine. Reports of a £600,000 fine, which Chelsea wouldn't comment on. That feels downright Wait, excessive what? to me. Yeah, I, I read that in a couple of different places. Chelsea would not comment. And I can understand why, because that seems absurd. So I don't know if that's true or not. But either way, Lukaku is back in the starting eleven and played against Tottenham in the EFL Cup on Wednesday, January 5th. And all signs pretty much point to him continuing to be a part of this squad going forward, which makes sense because uh, he's very good at soccer. He's also very good at speaking all sorts of different languages, uh, which really impressed me watching that interview. He's a he's a good player, and he's going to be a part of this team for the rest of the season yeah. for sure. Have, having read as many, going back to the interview it's, itself, having having read as many translations of that interview as I as I could find, and and watching it myself for kind of body language, I'm inclined to think, in retrospect, that there, there actually wasn't much malice in what Lukaku was saying, and I think this interview was primarily set up to re-establish bridges with with Inter and their fans after a pretty um, controversial exit in the summer, and I think Lukaku has just been a little bit. Uh, blunt and a little bit lazy with some of his comments and I, I'm not actually sure he does want to leave Chelsea which is why this situation has probably been diffused pretty quickly is that Lukaku um, wants to get back in the team and as as Joe says there he was back in the team within days he played in the in, in the Carabao Cup semi-final game against Spurs uh, during the week so I think hopefully for Tuchel and for Chelsea, this this situation is resolved, and at least in terms of Lukaku supposedly wanting to leave the club. But I I do still think there are some issues in terms of how he's been integrated into the team. But I also do push back against this idea that he's been an abject failure for Chelsea this season. He's he's um he's got seven goals in nineteen games, for only fourteen of them starts, and he's had injury and he's signed for a new club. So I actually do think, broadly speaking, he has improved Chelsea, but they haven't got the best out of them out of him just yet and, and Tuchel and Lukaku have both admitted that so if they're on the same page then it's uh, I think it could be a positive thing for Chelsea actually for me when I first read the stories I definitely read the the bigger headline ones the original tweet from Fabrizio Romano that definitely made it seem as though he was saying I want to move to Inter I do not like Chelsea and I think that's a oversimplification of what he was actually saying and I think we've come to learn that 
But I do think uh, I was listening to the athletic football podcast and they were making this point, And I think it's, it's worth repeating here. They're like, when you think of clubs that in their history have been controlled by the players or player pl- power has been a dominant force in does the manager stay or go? Chelsea is at or near the top of that list. And going back to Andre Vies Bosch, for example, wants to change the style, wants to change the way they play. The old guard says, no, he gets fired. And there does seem to be at Chelsea this sort of history of the players having a lot of influence on how things are going and how the team evolves or doesn't evolve. And and their speculation, which I tend to agree with, is that there may have been a little bit of an overreaction from Chelsea because of what's happened in the past and the fear that, oh, no, this might be happening again. And I wonder if that's why we, like, after the game where Lukaku isn't involved, a lot of the story is Tuchel speaking to different players and making sure that everyone's on board and building this sort of consensus coalition. And and I do wonder if there's a messaging thing from Chelsea of, look, we're all... We're all together. We all back Thomas Tuchel. He is our guy because this can all spin out of control very quickly, and they do not want that to occur. So I do wonder if that's part of why we've seen this slight overreaction slash hostage video from Chelsea. The, the thing that the thing that I find most fascinating when I've when I've sat down and, and thought about this whole situation. So I, I believe the thing that 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 I didn't like about this interview was, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, was that Chelsea knew nothing about it. It was an un, unauthorized interview. Sure. And so maybe that's why che- maybe that's why Tuchel has dropped him from the team. And I would I would respect that decision because I don't really want my players, if I'm a fan or a manager or even a teammate, I don't really want them giving unauthorized interviews. Um, Lukaku, there's an interesting um, talking point with regards to this in that Lukaku has quite frequently sought to almost go in an American sports type of way of of having his own um, public relations team and doing a lot of his own promotional material. So I remember when he was when he was signing for Manchester United, he was in a he was in a villa with uh, Paul Pogba. They were on holiday in the summer and they were putting out oh, yeah. videos and it yeah. was all kind of to tease this move to Manchester United. And Lukaku, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but he was certainly signed to Rock Nation, who have a lot of uh, American sports stars and obviously linked to, to Jay-Z. And so I, it, I just wonder if maybe it's a clash of cultures where Lukaku signed to this agency that do things a slightly different way to, to really generally are done in football. You don't really see players even your Messi's, Ronaldo's your massive names like that they don't tend to do their own media or promotional stuff it all comes from sponsors or clubs so I do wonder maybe if it's a clash of cultures and that's maybe what's created this whole mess I believe I'm correct in saying that Lukaku has a degree in uh, public relations and tourism so there we go uh, adding to his intelligence in the language he speaks Joe uh, he also has a degree in, in PR so maybe Graham that does kind of fit in with what we're talking about either way it seems like things are better or resolved at Chelsea, less so at Manchester United. Uh, I think we've talked plenty about the Premier League. We're going to talk about MLS in just a moment. First, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But 
For the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. We are back, and we've been talking uh, in the past couple weeks about uh, fixture congestion, the January window, some players that have been on the move, some players that still need a move. But, Joe, we haven't spent a ton of time with MLS. We haven't even talked about uh, Lorenzo, in- Lorenzo Insigne as of yet, as I recall. So let's talk MLS now, starting with Insigne. I believe you said on the BR show that that might be... Or maybe I think you just definitively said, I'm just uncomfortable saying it, that it's the biggest <laughs> move in MLS history. Uh, are you still... In that position? I am. Yeah. I mean, he's not the biggest name that's ever been in Major League Soccer, right? And Zlatan and David Beckham and and those guys specifically both outrank him in that category. But in terms of level, I mean, think about the Euros, right, that we all spent so much time watching over the summer. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing in every single meaningful game that Italy played in that tournament, right? He is a danger on that side. If he comes and, and this deal gets done finally and everything is, all the red tapes is done and all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and he ends up making it into Toronto and starts to play for them over the summer, when he steps on the field, he will immediately be the most talented player in, in Major League Soccer at this time and one of the most talented players ever. When you combine that talent, ever to play in Major League Soccer, when you combine that talent with the name and with what he's done recently and his age, he's 30 and he'll be 31 before he plays in Major League Soccer, but he still has at least a year or two left in his prime. And, and when you see that out on the field under Bob Bradley, let's not forget in Toronto, that is a dangerous proposition. And Signe has everything to be Toronto and Bob Bradley's Carlos Vela above the, the border, the northern border of the United States, right? That He has all the tools. It's a very similar deal in that sense, just with a better player than Carlos Vela has ever been. This is massive for Toronto. It's massive for Bob Bradley and that organization. And it's huge for Major League Soccer. He will be, if reports are to be believed, and, and this comes from Paul Tenorio and Sam Stage School, so I'm inclined to believe them always. Uh, he will be the highest paid player in the history of Major League Soccer with an annual salary of roughly $15 million a year, which will be close to eight after taxes. That puts him in a tier of his own in salary conversations in Major League Soccer. The one challenge with this whole thing uh, is the length of contract and Insigne's age, right? He is a little bit older. I said he's going to be 31 before he plays his first game in MLS. 
The deal, according to Paul and Sam, is four years with a six-month option at the end of that year, which would essentially just allow him to finish out the season because he's going he's joining midseason now. So it does sort of round out to almost five years if you think about it in terms of complete seasons. Uh, that's a long time to be saddled to someone who will not be 31 before he plays a game for you. So I think that is a risk here. And Toronto are making a risk by going out and signing a player of Insigne's quality and his stature. There's a lot that could go wrong, but oh boy, there's a lot that could go right. And I cannot wait to see him play in Major League Soccer. I think opposing right backs very much can wait. But, uh, you know, right backs can can suffer. They'll be all right. Graham, for you, because I, I think I agree with everything that Joe has said, and it's a really kind of interesting point, at least in my mind, that you have those names, the Beckhams, the Zlatans, even like Carlos, maybe not Carlos Vela, but some, to some extent Carlos Vela, just names that will put butts in seats, that will make people show up to games because they want to see the spectacle, the celebrity. Insigne feels more of a like a soccer hipster signing that will make Toronto good, but will also turn some heads for hipsters. Graham, you, you've got enough jerseys for me to call you a soccer <laughs> hipster. Is this the type of move that excites you when you're thinking about Major League Soccer? So I was going to say, I'm not sure that Insigne actually sells that more, that many more jerseys, uh, apart from to my house in uh, Scotland. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have home, away, and third kit, all with Insigne on the back. It's it's an exciting move, but no matter which way you look at it, I I actually I totally agree with Joe. I think the way I would word it is, I mean, the biggest and greatest is difficult to define. Um, I, I struggle to look past Beckham in in that regard, just because how things it's kind of a before Beckham and after Beckham situation in, in MLS, but. In terms of the best current player to have ever played in MLS, I think it, there's a good argument that it's Insigne, um, for all the reasons that, that, that Joe says. So it, it, I don't know how much he's going to move the needle in terms of the, the growth of the league, but in a weird sort of roundabout way, if you get my thinking here, the fact that Toronto are maybe thinking about just putting the best team on the pitch possible, maybe that is a kind of growth. That's that's where yeah. that's a point where MLS clubs are not they don't feel like they need to move the needle every time. And that maybe in its own way is a as a type of growth where they're just trying to build the best soccer teams possible. And Insignia will definitely help TFC do that they're also there's reports they're looking at uh, Andrea Bellotti another <laughs> yeah. Italian international at the end of the season which would again be another massive signing Bob Bradley's already there one of the best coaches in the league so it really feels like they're trying to um, replicate what they had a, a good a good few years ago with uh, Jovinko and really having the, the best team in the league and to go back to butts and seats quickly Toronto has a massive Italian population. Well, I, I shouldn't say a massive Italian population, but they have, I believe, the fourth largest Italian population in their city of, of any city outside of Italy in the world. So there is that tie-in. There's wow. the history with Italy in Giovinco and his time spent there. And Insigne is on another level in terms of notoriety among Italian soccer fans because of what he's done for Napoli throughout his career and what he's done for Italy in, in the Italian national team. So that is a big move. And, and one more thing for me on this before we maybe move on is the idea that Insigne is is a player that's going to help this team play and he's going to help them be really, really good. I, I I do believe that. Other things need to fall into place. But Toronto are going to be a much better team for having Insigne, at least for the next few years. And for Major League Soccer, having Toronto be good makes them better. It makes them more attractive and makes them a more appealing destination in other markets as well. I think that when LA and the teams there and, and the teams in New York and the teams in Toronto, the team in Toronto and the other big markets in MLS, when those teams are firing, when they're, when they're really operating on all cylinders, I think that's good for the league and good for the rest of the markets as well. So I do think this signing helps on a, a number of different levels, even if the name recognition isn't immediately at the Zlatan or, or Carlos Vela or even at the David Beckham level. 
One thing that can help with name recognition, Joe, is a, a catchy nickname. When they had Giovinco, I insisted on calling him Lil Sebastian. Uh, they are the same height, uh, Giovinco and Insigne. So we, should we go Lil Lorenzo or should we go Lil Enzo? What do you think? I, I like Lil Enzo. I have a really Lil hard Enzo, time yes. saying Lil. Like It, yeah, it just doesn't roll off the tongue super well. Um, but Taylor, I think that works well. Uh, Joe, if it helps, I was uh, practicing that on mute uh, a Good. moment ago. Good. So, yes, I too have a problem <laughs> with that. And the other thing I would say for Toronto, we know they are now a pipeline to Manchester United. So if Bob Bradley does well, Joe, do you envision <laughs> him being an assistant at Man United in the near future? Can you imagine how that would go? I, I don't even really want to think about that. We talked about you know Bob Bradley and Swansea and how the media treated him. I, I cannot fathom how awful that would be for Bob Bradley. Yeah. He'll only be at Manchester United if he, if he flames out after a few months. Oh, that seems word. to be the way. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Uh, well, Bradley is at Toronto now. That is one of a few coaching moves uh, that have happened so far this offseason. Joe, can you take us through maybe three other ones that have also occurred? Sure. We've already talked about a few of these. We talked about Bob Bradley in the past. We talked about Ezra Hendrickson, some other moves too. The three that I don't think we've talked about yet. Houston Dynamo hired Paolo Nagamura on Monday, former Sporting Kansas City 2, Swope Park Rangers head coach. This will be his first head coaching gig in uh, Major League Soccer and at that first division level. LAFC hired Steve Chirundolo on Monday. We'll talk more about LAFC in the listener questions that we're going to get to a bit later. That is a big hire for them, their first ever coach that isn't Bob Bradley. It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. And yesterday, Wednesday, uh, St. Louis City SC, that's right, St. Louis City SC, got to have all the monikers in there, announced former New York Red Bulls assistant coach Bradley Carnell as their very first head coach. So he is going to be the person leading them and helping uh, the, the front office that's already been compiled there build their inaugural roster for the team's debut in 2023. It is not the biggest name, certainly. He's not a, a person that I think many people who aren't really deep in MLS circles will even know. But he does have some experience as a player in Germany. He has some connections there. He has time spent in Major League Soccer. And that, specifically that last thing I said, time in Major League Soccer and an understanding of the league certainly seems to be something that St. Louis uh, are prioritizing right now. So in that sense, he does make does make sense to be this team's first head coach. My major criticism of the coaching hire so far is that St. Louis or Houston didn't didn't go for somebody like Big Sam or a very a very known coach from abroad, because then we would have gotten all four of the possibilities. You could go the proven manager route in Bob Bradley. You could go the unknown sort of academy manager for a, one of uh, the league's historically good clubs. Then you'd have the U.S. International from abroad with that pedigree. We just need that big name manager. And then we could see which one truly has the most success in Major League Soccer, because that would be the determinant factor, not the squads or the way they Solskjaer. play or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, let's get Solskjaer. Somebody needs to hire Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Let's make that happen. Good call, Graham. I love it. Where should he go, Graham? Where's the club that most needs Ole Gunnar? Um, the, is there the, one? The, yeah, I was going to say yes. Yes, I think Seattle's I mean, had it too good for too long. You're right. Let's get him into Seattle. Level Let's of playing just, uh, field. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I was I was thinking maybe Solskjaer needs you know he needs he needs a tan. Uh, having lived in Manchester for so long, so Florida or or uh, California, I guess. Perfect. Uh, another big move, Joe, that's happening would be uh, for RSL, who are getting a new owner, and I will add, finally, to that. Yes, finally. And, and this owner's name almost came up on Tuesday when we talked about Ricardo Pepe. I'll explain that in just a minute. David Blitzer is the new owner of Real Salt Lake. Uh, he owns some of the Philadelphia 76ers and the NBA, the New Jersey Devils and the NHL, Crystal Palace, uh, a few other European clubs. One of those other European clubs is Augsburg. He is uh, part of the financial muscle and a group 
group that owns part of Augsburg in the Bundesliga, which is Ricardo Pepe's new club, obviously. There's a tie-in there. He is involved in all these different organizations. He's hopefully, for RSL, going to be providing some stability there. It seems like he was involved, uh, according to reporting, in uh, luring Pablo Mastroni back to RSL, trying to keep him there after the, the, the end of the season they had after Freddy Juarez left to Seattle. So I don't I don't have much more on this right now. I'm sure Paul and Sam, or at least Sam, will discuss this on allocation disorder tomorrow. It's good to see them get some stability, hopefully, again. There's an asterisk there. And, and the other thing I do want to mention quickly is that in an interview he gave, uh, David Blitzer said that he wants to get the Utah Royals back to Utah after that team left in the whole uh, the ownership scandal that was happening there before they were moved to Kansas City. Apparently, David Blitzer wants to get them back in that market or, or get a club that would be called then the Utah Royals back in that market, which I think is a great thing for NWSL fans in that region. Yeah, it definitely feels like he's saying all the right things to start off. Maybe, again, Manchester United. Take note. Say the right things. It has a big impact. Uh, Joe, final sort of... Uh, points from our U.S. roundup of sorts. We've had some more transfer updates, some more news on that front. James Sands going uh, to Rangers from NYCFC now confirmed. I think we've had the photo of him with the jersey, which is almost always the sign that the move is official. Yes, that move is done. It's an 18th month loan, 18 month loan with an option to buy. I really struggle with that one. I don't know why that is, guys. But 18 month loan with an option to buy. The other update that I wanted to give after that show we did on Tuesday talking about all of these potential transfers and confirmed transfers is that apparently Anderlecht, if reports are to be believed out of Belgium, Anderlecht might be selling Mikel Murillo to Spartak Moscow, who are still in the Europa League. They're looking to strengthen their squad. That would be the right back that I said on Tuesday, I think would start over Brian Reynolds should he move from Roma to Anderlecht. So the pieces might be falling into place for a Brian Reynolds loan, maybe something more permanent there, who knows? And, and that would be a move that I'm, I'm really into should Mario move on and, and maybe that's happening at this point. So there's two quick updates, Sands, and maybe something on Brian Reynolds uh, that, that we felt like were worth bringing up after Tuesday's show. I'm really excited about the Sands move. I find myself surprised as to how excited I am now about Brian Reynolds potentially going to Anderlecht. That's a move that when we first talked about it, I was like, yeah, okay. Like, we'll see what happens. Maybe that works out well. I think with Mario potentially moving on, there's a lot of boxes ticked for why this could be a very smart move and why it could be good for him in the long run. So I think I'm hopeful that this works out well. Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. Uh, Graham, you've talked about it already a little bit, but just one more time. James Sands to Rangers. You good with this one? You think it's going to go well? Yeah, I think I think there's the potential for it to go well. I have questions over where he's going to fit into this team. I know he's a very versatile player. He can play in central defence, he can play right back, he can play in central midfield. So that is the most interesting aspect of this this move for me. I, I don't know where Van Bronckhorst is, is going to play him. But it is notable that Rangers have given this the the big billing. That could mean one of two things, that they are genuinely excited about James Sands and they think he's going to be a big player for them. Or he's going to be their only signing of the January transfer window and they're using this to get their social media engagements up with some uh, engagement from across the pond. Either way, it's definitely an interesting one and I will be keeping a close eye on it. This is a random one for you, Graham. If there were if there were an American player moving to Scotland, either for Celtic or Rangers, I'm assuming those would be the clubs that would be after them. Who is the player that you personally would be most excited to be able to go see in person to have playing in the Scottish League? I mean, are we talking realistically yeah, here? No, or? no. Just brought, like, not, could be Pulisic, not, Adams, Reyna, McKinney, whomever you want to go with. Um... Uh, well, I mean, attackers are most fun, aren't they? So Pulisic, I guess, is is, is the All one. Right. I was going to say Desk, because I've always liked Desk. Yeah, and, 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 and I think he is 
I still feel like he's maybe America's best player. I know he um, has had a bit of a rough time at Barcelona recently, but I don't know whether a right back is going to be enough for me to buy Celtic or Rangers tickets. <laughs> so yeah, an attacker, I guess. <laughs> A right-sider, man, an Atraf Hakimi, if you will. Speaking of Dest, uh, Graham, I'm glad you mentioned him because just before recording, I saw a report. Uh, not sure if there's any legitimacy to it that he was Chelsea's top target in January that they needed him to strengthen. So uh, a little bit more smoke to the uh, Dest to Chelsea rumor fire. We'll see what happens there. But for now, I think it's time for us to do some question answering. First, we're going to take one more break. Then we will be back with four listener questions. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and they, all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us, or thank you for skipping to this part of the show, whichever you did. Uh, question the first comes from The Kid. I'm assuming it's Billy The Kid, who's a time traveler now, and that's very exciting. How will Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo retire? Will they have a farewell tour, like uh, like season? Excuse me. So they have an entire farewell season. Will it be suddenly, by press conference or a tweet, or slowly fade from large clubs and end up bouncing around lower-level leagues as they refuse to admit they're old? Graham, <laughs> what do you think? Well, I mean, Ronaldo is going to become a robot, right? That's how that, yeah. that ends, and he's going to play forever. He's, I mean, I'm sure he's he already, already got a sponsor. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I'm sure he's already got a sponsorship deal with uh, Boston. What's that called? Boston Robotics. The one, the ones that make the dogs that freak everyone out. <laughs> so, so weird. Those dogs are so weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm to look at it seriously, with Ronaldo, I think we've already been given a bit of a preview of what the end of his career will be like. I don't think he will have, maybe I'm being unfair, but I I don't think he will have the self-awareness to realise when it's over and he will bounce around clubs and leagues, probably visiting MLS at some point, if he can... uh, visit america at all uh I'll, I'll i'll cut that short before the fire truck lawyers turn up outside oh yeah um yeah i think he's i think i can imagine him trying to prove he is still the best all the while growing more and more frustrated that he isn't so actually i'm not entirely sure that ronaldo is going to retire particularly gracefully 
Uh, I think he'll be quite frustrated for the next few years and we're already, as I say, get, getting a preview of that at Manchester United. With Messi, it's more difficult for me to make a call on how the curtain will come down on his career because I still have this sense that he's going back to Barcelona after his two-year contract at PSG. And I think if Messi finds himself back at Barca, I predict that he will retire there, which will, will feel right. That's what should have been the, the case all along. There, there was a fascination, or there, or there is a fascination, to seeing Messi at PSG and seeing him at another club, and it felt a bit weird. But I feel quite strongly that move to PSG should never have happened. And I wonder if Messi thinks that too. And, and I think when you see his emotion at winning the, the Copa America... In the summer, he appreciates the value of sentimentality and my hunch is that he still wants to go back to Barcelona and uh, probably retire there. So those are my two predictions. That makes a ton of sense, Graham, because when you think about like players in their twilight years, if they can either like explore new ground, Esteban Cambiaso going to Leicester, but oftentimes I think there is the desire to go back to that was that which was familiar. You end up playing with like your first club. And weirdly, Messi seems more poised to be able to do that, as you said, at the end of that two-year deal. Whereas Ronaldo, it kind of feels like is already there, already back with mm-hmm. Manchester United. Yep. Yes, he comes from uh, Sporting CP, Sporting Club de Portugal. But it feels like Man United were like his home club more so. And maybe that's just my, my fandom speaking. But I, I can't see him I going back fair. to Sporting and being as happy as he would have been if the Man United move had worked out again. And that was where he ended up retiring. Yeah, and obviously at Sporting, he only played a handful of, of matches there as well, whereas at Manchester United, he plays, what, 200, 200 games over a number of years? So yeah, I think it's fair to say that it feels like Man United is his, his, is his home club. I wouldn't rule out him going to Sporting at, at a future point in his career, when he's even when he's kind of 40 years old. I, I, I do think he's going to bounce around. I, it wouldn't surprise me if he's in MLS, if he's in Manchester United, if he's and at Sporting Lisbon, if he's maybe in a club in you know Qatar or Saudi Arabia or somewhere like that, I, I do think that's what the final years of his career is, is going to look like. Joe, if they could both end up in Major League Soccer, I'm assuming that you would prefer to get to see Messi in Major League Soccer, but I would love to know which one, if there were going to be one, you would want in MLS. And a follow-up question to that, if one of them were going to go into coaching, which would you rather see? I'm going to make you give me two specific answers here, Joe. Uh, I want Messi for both of those things. So Messi is, without right. a doubt, the, the player I'd, I'd most prefer to see in Major League Soccer. I'd love to get a chance to see Messi in person. That feels a lot more doable if he's playing here in the U.S. I don't have a strong desire to come into close contact or really yep. watch or cover Cristiano Ronaldo at any point yep. in the future. So Messi's my answer for player, and he's my answer for coach, mostly because I, I think there's this thing with coaches. We've talked about this in the past that were so good as players that they just get so frustrated with how incompetent their players are. And I think Messi would be, that would happen more with Messi because I think he's the best player of all time than any other coach before him. And just seeing him get incredibly frustrated at his Houston Dynamo players who just cannot cut around 18,000 different players when they have the ball on their left foot, that would uh, be some pretty good comedy. Yeah. Ronaldo has already coached his country to uh, Right, that too. Yeah, we don't need to see more of that, I guess. (laughs) I'm just envisioning there's the... There's always those stories about like the the Miami Dolphins team that went undefeated, and anytime anytime a team seems like they're going to go undefeated and then they don't, they cut to the Dolphins players that remain like still toasting and celebrating that they're the only ones. And I'm comparing that to Barcelona if Xavi just keeps bringing in ex teammates to like add to the coaching staff, like Denny Alves if he moves into a coaching <laughs> role, Lionel Messi comes back and retires, and maybe he's added. And then slowly, when Barcelona are underperforming on the pitch, the players can just look to the bench where there's that entire team that won the treble and think like all right we got to step it up that's what I'm envisioning now is you bring in 
the like 2009 Barcelona team to Seems coach. Seems like a good use of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a club that we know spends money really, really well feels like Barcelona could make that move. Of course. Yeah. I, weirdly, <laughs> I can't see. I can't see either one of these players as a coach. I don't nope. know. Maybe that will change. I see a decision like the LeBron James decision style press conference for Ronaldo, like when he does call it quits at 55 or whatever it's going to be. And I agree with Graham. I think Messi is going to go back to Barca and, and that might be the end of it for him there. I don't know. I, I don't think either one. I don't I think Messi certainly is going to do a lot of super high profile things after he retires. I think I think that's fair, Joe. But if they were to move to Major League Soccer, one of them or both of them. It feels like at least one of them is going to be in L.A. And LAFC could use some help, which gets us to our next question from Richard Rolson. Considering the flying start that LAFC had upon entering Major League Soccer, why did they fall off the last two seasons? And has this called into question Bob Bradley's reputation as head coach? Joe, let's take the first part first, which seems pretty logical. Sure. I'm going to lay some of the foundation here. LAFC won a supporter shield in 2019, set a points record with 70 two points. They were the most entertaining team I'd ever seen in Major League Soccer, certainly, and I think a lot of other folks out there would agree. Then one year later, 2020, this is the year of the MLS's back tournament, weird COVID year. Uh, They finished seventh in the West, and that was a, a really bizarre season. Then last year, the year we just finished up, they finished ninth in the Western Conference and missed the playoffs. The strange thing about LAFC is that Really, last year, even though they missed the playoffs, they were still an excellent team by a lot of the underlying numbers. They were second best in terms of expected goal difference per 90 minutes in MLS last year, only behind MLS Cup champions NYCFC. They had more expected goals than anybody in Major League Soccer last season. Those are our stats from FBREF.com. But they had flaws. They had issues defensively and in goalkeeping specifically. Thomas Romero really struggled in goal, and he played a chunk of that season in goal. He was not an effective shot stopper for them. Pablo Cisniega really struggled in goal as well. There were defensive mistakes on top of that, too, and in players that were missing, right? Eddie Segura towards ACL at center back. They lacked him in the back line. And in the attack... It was an issue of them just not putting the ball in the back of the net. The chances were there, but Carlos Vela wasn't healthy. Same for stretches of 2020. Uh, Diego Rossi went out to Turkey, went out to Fenerbahce on loan midseason, so they, they missed him in the attack. Christian Arango didn't get here till midseason, didn't get to LA until midseason, so they lacked a regular reliable number nine without someone like that filling the spot. And Brian Rodriguez, a player they'd had on, on the books for a couple of seasons, has never been productive in Major League Soccer despite being a hugely talented player. So between literally just not converting their chances, and they created a ton of them, but not putting the ball in the back of the net, between that and the really poor goalkeeping, between injuries to key players like Segura and Vela and and Rossi not being a part of the team anymore, trading Mark anthony Kay uh, to the Colorado Rapids, which I think was a good move for them and for Colorado, and certainly for Mark anthony Kay, but some, some squad upheaval, some changes there, some really bad luck. COVID screwing up the transfer market um, because I think LAFC would have liked to overhaul their squad more than they were essentially able to. And then LAFC's front office not necessarily nailing all of those signings. I think those are all big reasons as to why they fell off in terms of points. But man, I I still do think they were a good team last season just with a lot of rotten luck. It it felt kind of like the end of a cycle for LAFC last season, did it not? I mean, I know that's a bit of a cop-out opinion, but all the stuff you're saying there, Joe, you know, players leaving, maybe players not coming in as quickly as they would have liked, or maybe not being, uh, players not being replaced at all. 
it just kind of felt like, yeah, okay, this this team is in the middle of, or at the beginning of transitioning into something yep. else. And, um, you know, that team was obviously assembled. They were they were ready to go straight from their expansion season. So it's not like they really had a great transition at the start. So they had a good, you know, two, three seasons out of that group. And you just need to replenish the group every so often. And it just felt like a bit the start of a bit of a transition, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And the transition, it, it might have been effective had the transfer market been a little bit more normal or had LAFC been willing to sell players at a little bit less than what they wanted to get out of them. So there are things that could have happened and things that if they'd gone a different way, their transition might have been a lot more seamless. I think John Thorrington had done a really good job up until recently. And even still, I think he's done a lot of things very well as a general manager of LAFC. And they had tons of talent come in and got a lot of things out of players that we didn't expect to be as good as they've been. On the other hand, they've also missed on signings, and that hurts too. So there's a lot that goes into this on-field stuff, off-field stuff, front-office stuff, COVID, injuries, you know, transfer situations. There's a lot that goes into it. To get to the second half of the question, if I can here, has this called into question Bob Bradley's reputation as a head coach? I don't, I don't think it should. I, for me, it hasn't, at least. I can only speak for myself here. I think Bob Bradley is a very good soccer coach, probably the greatest American soccer coach ever. Uh, and I think he did an excellent job building this LAFC team into something recognizable, into something incredibly entertaining. And I expect he'll have a lot of success in Toronto as well. I think a lot of the things that happened in LA were outside of Bob Bradley's purview. And, and maybe there are some issues there. And I'm sure there are some problems that, that Bob Bradley uh, amassed while he was there. But I think he's an excellent coach. And I don't think his reputation is yeah. is tarnished or marred by that whole situation. And and I think the fact that he's gone to TFC and they made such an effort to to get him in. Obviously, he was lined up even before he'd he'd left LAFC, and this is a club that's spending a fortune on Insignia and reportedly going after Belotti, and they have a lot of money behind them. They they really could have had the, their pick of a number of different uh, really high caliber head coaches, Toronto, and yet Bradley was the guy that they picked above all others, and they seemed really keen to get hold of him. So that to me proves that his reputation hasn't really. Um, suffered much of a blow after last season. When I think of coaching equivalents, can you guys tell that I played fantasy uh, football this year? When I think of coaching equivalents to uh, Bob Bradley when it comes to the NFL, I think of Mike Tomlin at Pittsburgh. And I think of like, he's like kind of a no-nonsense coach who like, they're going to miss the playoffs this year. And to me, that would be the equivalent of the Steelers letting Mike Tomlin go and a smarter team just picking up immediately and, and knowing the value that's there. And I do think Bradley will go to Toronto and be just fine. Joe, for you, do you think then the pressure is sort of or should be on Steve Cherundolo if we're saying that this is a team that had a lot of or didn't have a lot of luck with injuries and with some of the player signings and inability to move players on in a timely manner? It does feel like they have a very strong squad that should be competitive from the jump. It doesn't feel like we're looking at an LAFC team that are in need of a complete rebuild. And so Toronto gets a little bit of leeway because they have to build. It seems like it's a team that could theoretically compete pretty quickly, so should be competing. Uh, it is pretty quickly. It is a strong squad, but it's not as strong as it's been. There have been some pretty right. major changes. Atuesta is gone. Uh, they sold him to Palmeiras in Brazil for a hefty chunk of change, admittedly. But he was the heart of that team at the base of that midfield. He also was one of the best armed players in Major League Soccer for the last couple of seasons. Losing him and losing, you know, Rossi, he's not a part of this squad right now. Who knows what's going to happen with him on loan in Turkey? Uh, you know, having to deal with some injuries too. There's challenges here losing Mark Anthony K to the Rapids, you know, on purpose, purposefully putting him there. There's challenges here. So for me, the initial pressure, especially over the next couple of months and really into the summer when that transfer window opens, 
is on John Thorrington. It's on that front office to, to retool this squad. Not a total rebuild. Christian Arango is a good piece to build around in the front line. Carlos Vela, if he's healthy and, and bought in, at least for the next few months until his contract expires, and who knows, who knows what's going to happen at that point. You know, getting getting some things out of those players is great, but there needs to be more. There need to be changes and in, in pieces that are brought in on top of what they already have. So that's the first thing I'm looking at is how is this squad retooled? And then after that, Yes, what is Terundolo doing? How is he trying to get this team to play? But it's going to take time for him to really stamp and, and put his mark on this team. So for me, the first questions that I have are directed towards John Thornton right now. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Vela there, Joe, because that, that surely is one of the big questions yeah. that has to be answered at LA, LAFC before the, the start of next season, even going back to all the way to the All-Star game that uh, this or last year, I should say now. Um, there was chat about him going to Europe and what he's going to do next. And if he leaves, then surely LAFC are... I mean, do they go for someone of similar stature to kind of fill that void? Not just in terms of on on the pitch, but just as as a figurehead for that team. So, yeah, that's one of the big questions for me. How bad would it be, Joe, if Diego Rossi came back, if it didn't work out at Fenerbahce? Do you think that it seems like LAFC are basically planning for him to not return? I think the reports I saw mooted a 10 million like option to make it permanent. But if he were to come back, would that be a problem? Uh, maybe a problem or a slight hiccup in what LAFC wants to be in terms of moving players on and really getting these talents from South America and building them into the squad, getting the most out of them, and then letting them go play in Europe where they probably want to be. It would be a hiccup there, but a boon in the short term, right? Diego Rossi is phenomenal. If he's bought in and willing to stick out the rest of the season or stick out another season, I don't think you're mad at that. Certainly Steve Terundolo is not mad at that. Maybe Thornton and the rest of the front office is... Not super thrilled that that's how this whole situation has gone. They want to get a profit out of Diego Rossi. But in terms of on-field ability, I mean, Rossi is one of the best attacking players wide or central in American soccer in in, in this region. So, yeah, I think you'd like to get him back in, but I really don't think that's going to happen. All right, Joe. Well, what is going to happen is I'm going to ask you the next question. It comes from Vire uh, Anargardel. I have three ideas to make time-wasting less of a thing. Are any of these three ideas valid? Uh, You can... There's a time limit to get the game going again, a la futsal. Uh, players, if they are in the box to receive a goal kick, need to be passed to. Uh, or a harder throw-in placement rules enforcement so that essentially you're having to take the throw-in from where it exactly goes out of bounds or right around there, because sometimes we do see players walking up the field and taking their time and slowing it down. Joe, the larger question I'm going to extend this to is, do you think that time-wasting is an issue? And if so, do we need? Do you have ideas for how to deal with it, ways that we could go about addressing it? Ahem, I'm going to step up, uh, up, up on my soapbox here. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I, I like time-wasting. Come at me. I think... In general life or just in <laughs> There is zero chance. Uh. I will speak for Joe here and say, there is zero chance Joe enjoys time-wasting in normal life because Joe gets more stuff done in a day than like three humans combined have any right to be uh, accomplishing. Yeah, I don't really like time wasting in real life, but I do like it in <laughs> soccer. I think it's entertaining. It's tough when it happens against your team. Taylor, I remember, shoot, what tournament was it? I cannot, okay, I, I guess I lied when I said I remember, but do you remember that Honduras game that the U.S. had recently? I think yeah. it was in Nations League, the semifinal, that, in like 12 awesome. minutes of the second half, we're taken up by Honduras's various time wasting tactics as it was yeah, set at nil-nil. Yes. But how entertaining was that? Was it annoying? Yeah, but man, that was good TV. Like, maybe not for the the soccer <laughs> fan trying to tune into a game, but for those of us that are entrenched in this sport, I, I think it's yeah. incredibly entertaining. So I, I don't want to get rid of time-wasting. Maybe there's some reform that needs to happen. I'm not against that happening necessarily, but I think it's fun, and I'm not really eager to get rid of it at all, honestly. You know, man, 
I was not prepared to go with you at all. And the game that now has me thinking, Joe, there might be something to what you're talking about, was the RSL Seattle playoff game, where RSL yes. were wasting time yes. from like the 30th <laughs> minute and doing so pretty overtly. Oh, yeah. And like David Ochoa will be booed by Seattle fans, Forever. I would assume, for the rest of his yes. career. And there is something to be said for the idea that it creates a narrative and everybody was paying attention to that game for that reason. Twitter was going insane because of how obvious the time wasting was and how it just built this like, is this going to work? Are Seattle going to find a way through? And even as a neutral, I was sort of amazed by what RSL was doing, but actively rooting for Seattle to find a way through because it just felt like it's what they deserved and then they didn't and that made it even more fascinating so that that game looms so large in my memory tells me joe that maybe there's something to what you're talking about here graham are we just Concacaf people is that what's happened to us have we just fully gone Concacaf over here so just today i watched a, a video i think it was from an israeli league match where there's a team that has a, a 3-2 lead in stoppage time and they protect the ball out by the corner flag for a full two and a half minutes and it's it's the best Amazing. thing that I have Amazing. watched in, in a while. It was more entertaining than, I don't know, the goals from the Puskas Award. Like there should be an award, <laughs> the, the Ballon d'Or should have an award or FIFA should have an award for time wasting and that would be my favourite award that's given out. So I, yes, I'm on board. <laughs> I got excited for a moment because I thought Graham was going to reference the uh, the Chris Russell video of Eunice Musa time wasting oh, today yeah. and breaking down all of the the time wasting he did when absorbing an injury and then staying down and <laughs> then stretching so good. and taking his time. There's an art to it. But to the actual question, I would yes. just say of those yes. three options, I would not mind if they were more strict about the placement for throw-ins. It's a weird one that bothers me a lot, but sometimes you'll see that player walk forward 30 yards, and it does kill a bunch of time, but it also is an easy way to advance the ball up the pitch, and it makes teams drop off, and it slows things down, and I think having to kind of take it quickly from where it went out of play makes a lot of sense. That's pretty logical for the way the, the rules of the game are supposed to be uh, applied. The The only thing I would say about that is how... How do you enforce that? And in enforcing it, do you just waste yes. the time that the person yeah. taking the throw-in would have done anyway? Oh, oh, sorry. Am I am I in the zone? Oh, oh, let me move forward. Oh, sorry. Too far forward. I'll move back. Sorry. Oh, oh, okay. Am I? Are they using oh, the, the right disappearing spot? spray for free kicks? Okay, now I'll throw uh, I mean, to mark that. I like. I know you guys are asking this in jest. I have an answer for you. You've already okay, said it, go. Graham. It's the Boston Dynamics robot dog. We have a bunch of them around the pitch. They have laser sights, and they will just like walk slash run slash creepily move to the spot where the throw and has to be taken they'll put a laser on the spot and that's where it has to be it's science graham what could go wrong ah yeah i mean that is the best use of that technology that i think anyone has come up with so far so <laughs> congratulations i did it i solved it i do i wouldn't mind seeing a game in which uh barry glendening for the guardian always proposes this one i'm sure others have as well the idea of making it two 30 minute halves but having it be the clock actually stops when the ball goes out of bounds and i I feel like that might end up being a baseball style thing where we get it. I don't know. It ends up being like a four hour long game. And at the very least, that would show us how much time is killed by the ball being out yeah. of play and not uh, in possession. Yeah. So as, as as a general rule, that's related to what's known as effective playing time. So as as a general rule, you tend to get about 60 minutes of actual soccer in a, in a 90 minute match. Um, I, I have looked at the numbers of the league. So the, the Premier League, actually, you get more effective playing time in any other league in Europe. La Liga tends to be quite low in, in that ranking. Um, it might well be the case that we want more soccer and that you actually want 90 minutes of soccer, but I, I, we would have to consider what the what the knock-on of that would be. You know, Would it affect scorelines? Would you get more like higher scoring 
games, you, I mean, you probably would, almost certainly would, would you get more injuries, fitness of players and things like that? So Barry Glendening suggesting 60 minutes, two halves of 30 makes complete sense and I am completely against it for reasons I can't quite uh, articulate (laughs) other than just tradition. I can tell why Graham is against it because now what I'm realizing is this is how Graham is able to watch so many games, Joe, is that he just waits for the ball to go out of bounds in one and then goes and watches another one until ball goes out of bounds there and that way you're never really missing anything because it stands to reason you could probably watch two games at once with how often the ball was out of play. Graham, I see what you're doing here. It's genius. We're on to you, Graham. I've, I've been figured out. Yeah, we're on to you. You've, you've caught me. Uh, but Joe, I appreciate you uh, getting on your soapbox to answer that one. And, I, and I'm surprised to say that I come away agreeing with you. Uh, you said earlier that you don't want to speak for us. I think when it comes to Major League Soccer, you can speak for me. And apparently when it comes for time-wasting, you can also speak for me. There we go. Welcome to the time-wasting side, guys. It is a pleasure to have you. Uh, Graham, Joe is stepping down from his soapbox. I don't need to know, I don't know if you need to get on yours for this one. Final question mm-hmm. comes from Dylan Barnard. How many tickets are available to away fans in a given match? Is it decided by the home team or by the league? Yeah, so th- there's a bit of difference depending on the competition, but most commonly it is up to the to the home team. However, there are some restrictions and regulations that are set by the, the league body. So for instance, in the Premier League, the maximum ticket allocation um, for any away match is 3,000 tickets or 10% of the overall, overall capacity if the capacity of the stadium is over 30,000. Um, as far as I can see, maybe you guys have some more information on this, but there is no minimum number of away tickets handed to fans of away teams in Premier League matches. The league's only rule stipulates that away supporters must be seated together at all stadiums and at least one block of away fan seats must be made available pitch side. So I guess that stipulation is there must be some away fans. Um, I can't see a minimum number. I know for a fact that there isn't a limit on the number of away tickets in Scotland because Celtic and Rangers have restricted away fans the last few times that they have played each other, which I think is a real shame because that just diminishes those matches as a spectacle in my view. And the old firm matches, they used to give like a whole stand to the away fans at each ground. And I just thought that added to the spectacle and that's kind of been lost recently um, and on the flip side there's no maximum in Scotland either so in fact you can you, you have a lot of clubs that give half their tickets to Celtic and Rangers when they come to visit so Livingston do this Kilmarnock have done it in the past Motherwell's biggest stand at their stadium is the away stand which Celtic and Rangers get when they play there and it was actually specifically built in the 90s for the Scottish football boom that was happening at that time uh, particularly with Celtic and Rangers it was built for the away fans to get more away fans in um, and then the other thing to mention, I guess, would be in other leagues, there, there isn't really any need for rules and away ticket allocations because there isn't really a culture of away fans, like in Spain, where you rarely have any away fans. If you look at a, a classical or any big derby, um, there's a there's a spattering of fans kind of high up in the Camp Nou or the, or the Bernabeu or whatever stadium it is, and you don't really have that culture of away fans. You, you certainly don't have the big blocks of away fans like you have in the Premier League. So the the short answer is it kind of depends on, on the league and... And, and the culture of the country as well. Joe, am I am I correct in saying, or do you feel like I'm correct in saying that where this is more of an issue would be in Major League Soccer? And I think about specifically in MLS Cup Final when it is the 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 team with the better ranking hosting that game. I feel like every single year there are stories about uh, the away team not getting enough tickets or being allocated to a certain yep. area that isn't particularly advantageous. That feels like where this does become a problem. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, 2018, it's happened with the Timbers. Uh, There's that whole situation. I believe that's the right year in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They're yep. given more tickets after the initial allotment and then another 400 through a lottery process, I believe. There were issues this past year at Providence Park in, in the lead-up to that MLS Cup uh, game where NYCFC were not allotted a ton and then it ended up being more. And it, it's always been... I shouldn't say always, but it does tend to be an issue in those kinds of games, in those big moments. And it's hard in MLS because of the differences in the size of stadiums and the differences in support in different markets. It can be a little challenging to figure out the logistics for all of those things. The only other data point I'll add is in the Champions League. I read a piece from uh, a magazine in Spain that cited that regulations state that stadium capacity will be set by UEFA with 5% of the total capacity allotted for away fans in this current iteration of the Champions League. So there's another uh, there's another instance where this is more so set by the competition rather than any particular stadium. And I know it, it depends on where and, and what competition you're talking about. But the Champions League, it's going to vary based on the size of the stadium. Um, that 5% number from what I've read will stay the same regardless of where the game's being played. Graham, final question on this one. Like, I think of, like, the games I would go to uh, in Turkey at Galatasaray, and the away fans mm-hmm. were always, like, shoved up in one corner, or maybe they would yeah. get one small strip uh, of the lower, like, part of the stadium and then a small strip in the upper part. But it was never much, and it was never particularly a kind allotment. I feel like the Premier League, you usually get a decent-sized section of away fans, like, right behind the goal or around the yeah. goal. It seems like the Premier League is better with away fan ticket allocation. So my question is, first off, is that the case? Uh, and if so, are there leagues that you think aren't as good when it comes to that sort of allocation? Uh, well, La Liga is definitely the worst in my experience for the reasons I explained earlier. You go to a Classico, and I have I have been to a Classico, and there were Barcelona fans at, at the Bernabeu, and they were as far up into the roof as you could possibly be. And there was only maybe a few rows of them. And it's the same at the camp now. I haven't been to the camp now for a classical, but I've seen pictures of it. Um, I think even in the camp now, the away fans are behind kind of like a a netting sort of thing, which is uh, interesting. But yes, I I couldn't see, I looked through the Premier League's rule on, on rulings on um, away ticket allocations. I couldn't see anything on the placement of where that block is, but it definitely seems the Premier League is better. The the one that comes to mind instantly is uh, Stamford Bridge, where the away fans have a really big block and they have they seem to have two tiers as well in some instances and they're right behind one of the goals and you get a lot of um, players celebrating, you know, away players when they score, celebrating in front of that block. So it definitely feels like... And if, the, if that is a stipulation by the Premier League and I've just not seen it, then that's smart by the Premier League as, in Agreed. terms of them being a TV product because I just feel like that adds to the spectacle and the colour and the atmosphere of, of a game and it just it just adds to the product. So if they are stipulating that, then I, I am all in favour of that. It is one of my favourite little things about the Premier League is when the away team is playing well, especially when it's a team that is not expected to play well. And you could hear the away fans out singing, out chanting the home crowd. And then when the home crowd has to respond to that and pick it up as a result, there's a back and forth that has to happen to kind of create that atmosphere and create that tension. And I think the Premier League tends to have it pretty effectively. With all that said, uh, my large dog has been with us throughout recording. She has been asleep. She only started to 
uh, make audible sleep noises about five minutes ago, which says to me that she is now officially bored of this conversation, (laughs) which means maybe it's time to end (laughs) this episode. Whenever Piper starts sleep dreaming, that means it's time to move on. I feel like that should be our level from now on, gentlemen. That feels about right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Yeah. Better a real dog than a robot dog. If the robot dogs start making noises, then I'm a little bit concerned. For now, though, we've put out uh, four excellent shows this week. We will have an episode of Allocation Disorder to round things out. And then we will be back with our normal uh, host, our normal foursome, I believe, for the weekend review. For now, Graham Ruthven, thank you so much for being here. Has it been fun to not have Scotland slander at least once (laughs) per episode? Yeah, I had I had one week break, but I feel like Ryan has probably been saving up all his Scotland slander and his week off, and it's going to be double Scotland slander next week, so I'm preparing for that. <laughs> I feel like we've done a good job of talking about Scotland while Ryan yeah, uh, was absent, so, so that's that's been fun. Joe Lowry, I don't know if there's anything, I don't think I've made any youth jokes or anything like that this week, so has that been nice to, to not be questioned on that front? Oh, it's all good. I mean, the, the right. 90s movies are going to come up one way or the other, Taylor. It's unavoidable. Whether you're here or Ryan's here, Graham's here, it's just going to happen, man. All right. All right. Well, I I appreciate your willingness to roll with those and not along politely. Uh, But Joe, Graham, thank you all both so much for being here. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you all again very soon.